Listeners, readers, welcome to the Foxed page where we dive deep into the very best books. And for those of you who are maybe not trafficking in books, you might not know what Foxed page means. Foxing is simply those little dots that you'll see sometimes on the uh, pages of very old, very beloved books. Quick note before we dive into Deadwood today, this is a lecture that was actually delivered in 2022 for um, my incredible crowd of uh, readers over at Kepler's Books. So there are a couple of different times uh, where I will refer to uh, you know things that sound like maybe I'm giving a live lecture. <clears throat> So if there are, uh, you know, some little inconsistencies and some little weirdnesses, uh, thank you for your patience and enjoy. Hi, everybody. Howdy. I'm thinking we should start out with a big howdy um, today, maybe a little hee-haw. Um, I'm very, very excited about talking about Deadwood with you all today. Um, it was such a treat yet again to just dive back into this world. I mean, I'm honestly tempted to start back at the beginning with the television show and just ride this whole Deadwood thing um, as far as I possibly can. I hope you liked it. I got some good feedback from people um, that they were enjoying the pros. I got um, actually a lot of feedback from you people who are listening. And I love all you people who are out there listening to the book that people act like that's somehow lesser than, um, than actually reading the pages. I totally disagree. I think that there's something really magical actually about absorbing these things um, orally through the ears. Um, and it also, uh, from what I hear, makes for some good times in the supermarket when you're laughing, you know, uproariously and people have no idea why. You can tell them you're listening to a great book. So um, I want to dive in because as always, there is so, so, so much to say. And always we have to ask ourselves, and this is a very important question for me, which is why read this book? You have a lot that is competing for your time and attention. And as you all know, I love television. And part of me is like, why does anyone read when there is so much amazing television? So I'm very careful, especially when I ask you to read a, a relatively long book like this one. And um, I hope that you, by the end of this, it feels sort of even more worth it than before. Okay, so why this book? First of all, um, this is actually a lot like how I came to King Lear. So um, I was thinking about Thousand Acres and I'm really into this kind of regionalist exploration of our country through literature. Uh, and so I was very interested in Iowa and this, I mean, was I very interested in Iowa? No, but I was interested in the concept of the literary Midwest and um, interested in the Shakespearean adaptation that Jane Smiley did. And then that led me back, of course, to King Lear. So what happened with this one is we were watching Dead with the television and the language in the show, which we will talk about next week, is so incredibly Shakespearean that I just, I was like, I have to read this novel. Turns out David Milch, who is the writer for HBO for um, Deadwood, turns out he says he did not read the, the novel. Um, there's a little bit of, you know, scuttlebutt online about how that's probably, I mean, people say that it is not true, which who cares? Um, but in both cases, there's a lot of focus on Charlie Utter uh, and Seth Bullock. Although the Al Swearingen situation is very different in the book and in the um, television show. But the language in the television show is so incredibly Shakespearean that I thought I need to check out this novel. And then when I read it, there's definitely some Shakespearean overtones in the prose, but the prose is very, very different. It's very sort of cowboy 
for lack of a better word, that's not a super academic term, uh, but, but it's also so incredibly beautiful. So it's gonna be really fun to look at the Shakespearean television sort of version of this uh, when we talk next week versus this incredible prose by Pete Dexter. Uh, I also like not just looking at the idea of regionalism, but trying to sort of um, get at this American origin story. So there's, you know, obviously our country has all sorts of different mythologies and um, we are very regionalist and we're a very large country, but there is this idea of our um, sort of communal origin story. And I was very interested in, in the West and in sort of this weird um, very capitalist manifest destiny sort of situation uh, that was going on in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, I also, um, I like to throw in what I call a dude book. This is definitely a dude book. And I'm really interested, we could actually talk for a long, long time about sort of what, you know, is there, is there sort of like a more um, women, you know, novel, and is there a more male novel? And this one, I mean, it's fairly obvious, it's written by a man for one, but that's not um, definitive by any stretch, but it really does a very, very good job, I think, of, of treating male intimacy. And I think it's so interesting that we see these very intimate relationships between these men who are really stoic and who are not um, super great at, you know, processing. This is not like some sort of um, male drum circle that's gonna come uh, almost exactly a hundred years later, but, but there is this incredible window into male intimacy. So I like this because it's a dude book, but it's also, um, uh, you know, it's got its softer side. So Pete Dexter, um, he was the, he's, uh, we have a little picture of him right here. We're gonna take another look at a picture of him soon. Um, he wrote a book called Paris Trout that won him the National Book Award. He was born in Michigan, lived in Georgia, Illinois, South Dakota, and now he lives in Puget Sound. So he's a bit of a regionalist expert. This is his only Western book. Um, I read, uh, wow, Paris Trout, loved it, don't remember it at all, um, but I do remember loving it. So take that as an endorsement. Deadwood came out in 1986. So it's interesting, I mean, I hate to tell you this, but 1986 was 36 years ago. So this book is a bit of a classic, it's old, but what I love is it is so timeless that he literally could have, well, with a couple of exceptions, it's very firmly from 1876. And, and, and so you have this 67, 76, we're gonna get to that in one second. Um, but, but there is this sense of it feeling both very sort of contemporary uh, in terms of, of Dexter as sort of like, you know, there, there are lots of different women in the story. There, it's a very wide um, gamut and, and it's a very, um, I think it's an interesting look at violence, which we're gonna get to, but all of that is, um, it, it, it makes it feel sort of timeless because he's talking about something uh, that was well in the past. The television series came out, I believe in 2005. I have a little question mark by that and I did not check that. Um, but I think that, I think, you know, early-ish 2000s, and um, it's up there with The Sopranos. I think it's actually a little underrated, but I wonder if part of that is because the language is so Shakespearean, but it is so good. You guys, oh my God, it's so good. Okay, so I'm gonna um, give a quick sense of our agenda today. We're gonna talk, uh, we're gonna dive in first. Then we're gonna talk about structure. We're gonna give kind of a quick um, look at some of the themes that are dealt with in the book. We're gonna talk about cosmology which goes in with this idea of both regionalism and an origin story. Cosmology simply being the way that the, uh, that the book or the people in the book are thinking about, you know, sort of the cosmos, their own personal cosmos, whether, 
whether it has to do um, with faith and God or origin stories or, um, you know, code of ethics. So we're going to look at that. Then we're going to look at this idea of sympathy and who we have sympathy for in the book and who we don't. The idea of land, this idea of, of the actual territory of South Dakota as being very important. Um, and then we're going to talk about the incredible prose and finally violence. And then we're going to end. Um, a lot, a lot to talk about today. So we'll dive right in. First of all, I say this every time, the only thing you need to do in order to sort of get more out of your reading experience is just to pay attention. So this is gonna be 90 minutes of how you can really pay close attention. Deadwood, we always look at the title first. I think um, people are pretty good about checking out the title. People are, I think readers, myself included, a little less good at looking at chapters of uh, chapter titles, but the, the, the title of the book usually sticks in people's, um, you know, minds at least for for a bit i like deadwood so much so there's a lot going on with this so one of the things obviously it's a bit ominous this idea of dead wood um and, and it's both an idea of you know like like a tree trunk you know dead wood like that there's also a little bit of a sense of like you know like sherwood forest so this idea of dead wood as like being a wood of the dead um it's also it, there's obviously you know a very sort of ominous overtone with the whole thing but I also think it's important that this is putting our focus very firmly on our sense of place. So what is important here, what Pete Dexter is wanting us to focus on is this sense of place. Um, and in particular, this one city, it's not called South Dakota, it's not called Deadwood, South Dakota. It's, it's this particular community that is, um, is really the focus here today. Uh, it also says a novel here, which is important because he is dealing with very real people and he is creating a world that is so lifelike uh, that you almost wonder if it's, I mean, you don't actually wonder because it says a novel right here and also because of the tone and the descriptions and how everything is so well put in scene, you never think, oh, he might be writing a, a, a biography, but you do get a sense of a very well-crafted and very well-done historical fiction, which is still fiction. And then I love this quotation here, Jonathan Franzen, another, you know, dude, dude, kind of a writer, uh, although he can really kind of bridge the gap too. But Jonathan Franzen says, if you want to call Deadwood a Western, you might as well call the House of Mirth Chicklet. So I like the idea here because he, Jonathan Franzen, is really leaning into this idea of um, like male literature and female literature, obviously chick lit being um, a somewhat pejorative term, although I really, um, there's a decent amount of chick lit that I like. And a Western, you know, it's, it's like that thing in terms of movies, but also certainly in terms of books, um, that the Western is, is written with a little bit more of a sort of a male sensibility in mind. So he's really leaning into this kind of dichotomy. But what he's saying is that both of those things transcend both the category. So it's not a simple Western and Edith Wharton is not a simple sort of chick lit situation. They're not genre fiction being like science fiction, romance, Western, um, chick lit. It's not a genre. Um, so, so it's both transcending gender and also any sort of literary category, which I think is so apt because this book is not a Western. I mean, it's definitely, def I mean, it is a Western, but it is so much more than that. Okay, good. Um, we are going to dive right in to the dedication here. For Dorothy and William Seltz of Vermilion, South Dakota. So, um, 
did a little snooping, a little, um, oh, it was kind of sad. I found Dorothy Saltz's um, obituary and it was written in this very like old tiny font. It looked like it was from the middle of the 19th century, but uh, it was not. She was, I believe his, she was an English professor at the University of South Dakota. So I'm imagining that this was a, an English professor that he had while he was in college there. Uh, and that, you know, presumably he got close with these two people. Um, they were man and wife. Dorothy and, and William, not clear what William did um, in my snooping online. But I also really like this idea of vermilion, South Dakota. So vermilion is like a, it's a very brilliant red color. It's used mostly as an adjective, but also it comes from mercurial sulfide. That's not a fact that I just knew off the top of my head. That was something that um, when I looked up what vermilion was all about. So I like this idea. Um, so the Black Hills are known as being black, but if you've ever been to South Dakota, there's a lot of red in the soil. So there's this idea of, of um, places as, as really literally coloring the lives of the people around them. And vermilion is just such a beautiful word that, that there's like this nice tie between a sense of place and the actual soil, you know, the minerals in the soil, because obviously one of the very important um, is it a mineral? Is gold? I think gold is a, is a mineral. It's um, AU, am I right? On the periodic table. Um, so obviously the, what the soil is made up of in South Dakota is hugely important, even though it is not talked about. Um, but I like this idea of vermilion sort of reminding us that, that the soil is important because of, of the gold. Uh, okay, and then we have this kind of unconventional thing here that says, I would like to take a moment here to thank Mrs. Marjorie Pontius. Time for the glasses, people. Um, Pontius. I would like to take a moment here to thank Mrs. Marjorie Pontius, which is interesting because it gives the whole book this very biblical kind of air, uh, who runs the Carnegie Library in Deadwood. The town of Deadwood and I are both lucky she is there. So I really love this um, in a couple for a couple of different reasons. One is that this idea um, of the Carnegie Library is reminding us of this era, and it's reminding us because of Andrew Carnegie. Carnegie, um, people are really mixing that one up these days. They're saying it both ways for sure. He was a steel magnet, magnate. Um, and, you know, really made tons and tons of money with the railroads. So there is this idea of these hugely successful people who came out of this era. Um, and then, of course, the idea of, of him founding libraries as a philanthropist, this was very important to him. So this idea of, of myth making and these, these sort of like huge like titans of industry that are very much about our, um, our origin story. And if the American dream is rags to riches, uh, then a guy like um, Andrew Carnegie is definitely that, you know, he used to work as a clerk maybe, and then sort of made his way up. So he's a, an example of that. But I also really love this idea of the town of Deadwood and I are both lucky she is there. So what I like about that is our friend Pete, our author here, Pete Dexter, is, is putting himself, the town of South Dakota and I are lucky she's here. There's this kind of sense of him being kind of on equal footing with the town of Deadwood, which is awesome. There's also a cool thing that's happening because when he's talking about the town of Deadwood and I, he's talking about the author. So there's a very subtle breaking down of the division between fact and fiction here, because obviously the town of Deadwood and a lot of these other places exist in the real world the same way that Pete does. And then we have the next part, which again is not 
Um, these are somewhat unconventional, these little things. He doesn't have an epigraph at the beginning and he has a standard dedication, but then there's this kind of unusual thinking of the librarian. And then there's this kind of disclaimer that's actually very bold. So on this next page here, the large events and settings of this novel, the fire that destroyed Deadwood, the assassinations of Bill Hickok and the China Doll, the weather, the life and travels of Charlie Utter are all real. So this is so interesting because again, we have a kind of a, kind of a, uh, it, like a lot of things are being put on the same playing field here, the same level that um, are somewhat sort of questionable. So obviously Bill Hickok and the China Doll, you can understand that, but the weather makes you pause. So we don't know if Pete Dexter is talking generally about like horrible um, South Dakota winters, or if he like got out, you know, the records and was looking at the daily, um, you know, you can imagine him doing that, looking at the Carnegie Library with um, the librarian there, Mrs. Pontius. Um, you know, you can imagine him looking through old newspapers and finding all of this information. But there is part of you that's like, wait, how, how can he really know the weather? And how can weather sort of be real in some sense? So, um, it, it, he's he's playing a little bit here with this idea of, of what is fact and what is fiction. And then the characters, with the exception of Malcolm Nash, are also real. And we're in Deadwood at the time these events occurred. So this is an even bolder statement, because first of all, when you say characters, you think of a fictional character. You also think of like, oh, that guy's a real character, but mostly you're meant to think of like a fictional character. And what you expect him to say is with the exception of Malcolm Nash are fictional and basically like this is the normal disclaimer would say and you know any um, perceived whatever similarities are um, you know something of the whatever chance or whatever the normal disclaimer is he's turning it on his head and saying in fact that everyone except for Malcolm Nash is real. And certainly these people really existed. You know, obviously George, is George Hurston, no. I think he's only in the television, but um, like a bunch of the different, you know, Seth Bullock and Sol Solomon Starr, all of those people are real people. I've seen pictures of them. Um, but this idea of Malcolm Nash as being the absolute only person, I mean, maybe the bottle fiend did exist. Maybe the bottle collecting um, soft brain guy, maybe there was a little piece in the newspaper about him. We don't put it past Pete Dexter to have done that kind of research, uh, but it's also hard to imagine I mean, did every single one of those prostitutes exist? It's a little, um, there's a little fuzziness here that I love personally. Um, but I'm gonna share my screen in the meantime. Um, oh, I was gonna blow dry my hair earlier. And then I was like, wait a minute, why would I blow dry my hair when I look exactly like Bill Hickok? So there's, here's, here I am <laughs> as Bill Hickok back in the day. This is the Carnegie Library in Deadwood. This is a, a very old picture when it was um, newer. And then here it is. I like the idea of seeing it, you know, with like the traffic sign out front and seeing it in color, because this is where Pete Dexter in the 80s was writing this novel, which I think is cool. And then this idea of all of the characters and the different people as being real. I love this kind of um, audiovisual stuff that I'm about to be able to share with you. Look at that picture. That's Wild Bill. Um, he looks so sad. I don't know when this was taken. This is not near the super end of his life because he definitely looks older later. Um, his hair is looking rad though. Look at his hair. Um, this, I, I just, he looks so soulful and so, um, oh, just such a great photograph. Okay, and then we have this amazing picture. This is Agnes um, in 1871 back in the circus, in her circus days. 
Um, here we have Calamity Jane, um, which if you have not watched the television and you plan to plan to be excited about Calamity Jane, the actress is unbelievable. It's just so, so well done. Uh, and then we have, there's a, there's a lot of information about the Chinese experience in South Dakota and in Deadwood in particular. And these are some of the many women who were essentially um, treated as, you know, it was human trafficking as sex uh, objects, really. None of these is the China doll. I couldn't find a picture of her in particular, but, but these are some of the people who were there. Um, this is Pete Dexter. Uh, okay, so now, so there are five parts, which is interesting um, because it, it's closer to a Shakespearean um, play where you would normally have your five acts. But again, one of them is sort of much, um, it's in the future and it's also much smaller. But we're starting off with a bang, as it were, um, with Bill here. Uh, and we know it's 1876. So I'm gonna give you just some quick uh, historical context, which most of this you get from the book. You certainly don't need to know this, but um, gold was discovered, get this, in 1874 in South Dakota. So when gold was discovered anywhere in the United States, th this country was quick to act. I mean, this is like a, we were right in there. So for example, um, you know, it, when uh, the United, when, well, when California had our gold rush out here, it, it, 1849 was kind of the big time for it. Uh, and California was made a state in 1850. Like we just, really moved. And so when gold is discovered in 1874 in South Dakota, you have this series of wars against the Native American people because there was a treaty that gave them the Black Hills. So this is, it's unfortunate that this is not given more weight in uh, the course of this novel, but this is a horrendous and awful and mortifying uh, chapter of American history because we gave the land to the Sioux and the Lakota tribes. Um, it was their sacred land. This is where they believe that the, that the sort of belly of the earth um, is, it's actually right near Mount Rushmore, um, which is awful, um, but, but this is sacred land for them. And so the government said, yes, you can have your sacred land. Then, someone discovered gold and they were like, mm, actually, whoops, no, you can't have it. So there were these wars that were going on. Um, the Great Sioux War was in 1876 and uh, Custer's Last Stand was in June of 1876. And, you know, I have this idea that Custer's Last Stand from like my grade school, um, you know, history, that it was like some sort of like tragic thing, even just the name of it. Um, when in reality, of course, we need to take a, a better look and understand what exactly um, Custer was trying to do. I mean, trying to take this, this land from the native people. So, um, oh, but the United States annexed the land, even though we had, um, even though Custer was not successful in that one skirmish um, or, or battle or extermination or genocide or wh whatever you wanna call it, um, there was uh, an agreement of 1877 that gave the United States, the, it, basically the United States annexed the land at that point. Um, so uh, in 1867, there are 38 states, California having become one in 1850. Um, but again, the important thing is that as soon as there's gold in them, their hills, um, our government was quick to snatch it up. Okay, and now we are, um, we are gonna take a look at the first page. The boy shot Wild Bill's horse at dusk while Bill was off in the bushes to relieve himself. It was lucky for everyone but the horse that it happened when it did, but not so lucky it had to be God's hand in it. 
Okay, so one thing I want you to just kind of keep that in mind, keep that, um, that phrase in mind. Sorry, I'm moving some books here for a dog because it's going to come back, this idea of it was lucky for everyone but the horse. Uh, okay, so we are starting, we've talked before that realist fiction would start with geography, especially in a regionalist novel. You would start with this big sweeping vista. It's like a very John Steinbeck thing that you would have this kind of um, a sweeping view of a whole valley. And then you would sort of home in slowly, slowly on these characters. But in this case, what we have is we're starting right in the middle of action and right in the middle um, with people that we don't know, but we are going to know very soon. So you've got the boy shot Wild Bill's horse at dusk while Bill was off in the bushes to relieve himself. So there's also something that's happening here. Um, essentially with impotence, there's this idea that Wild Bill is not the kind of wild and crazy lady, ladies man that he used to be. And in fact, all of the conversations that involve his penis these days are all about how difficult it is for him to urinate and how long it takes him in the bushes. And it's this idea of relieving himself of just sort of a, a bodily function that has become very cumbersome because he, like South Dakota and the gold rush there, is sort of, um, he's coming to the end of, his, end of his prime. Okay, it always took Bill a while in the bushes. It wasn't dusk when he'd gone in there and things have to happen sometime. Couple of things I want to note about the prose. So this is the, the prose is so incredible. And for those of you who read the book, um, I loved it on audio because it's this very kind of gruff, kind of Marlboro man guy who's reading it. But you also really hear the cadence of this kind of cowboy prose. It's not Shakespearean like we have in the uh, in the television series. But this um, this sentence, it was lucky for everybody but the horse that it happened when it did but not so lucky it had to be God's hand in it. So that is a bunch of phrases that are all mushed together in this kind of um, atypical syntax. And there's no punctuation. It's actually not super easy to read out loud. Kudos to that Marlboro man who read it for the audible um, because there, you have to read slowly and you have to be sort of careful with what you're saying. So you end up with this kind of slow kind of cowboy kind of cadence. Um, you can hear it. Uh, it was lucky for everybody but the horse that it happened when it did, but not so lucky it had to be God's hand in it. There are a bunch of sort of peculiarities about syntax that make it feel very spoken. And then also, again, force you to kind of slow down in a way that I think is absolutely genius. It's also very declarative. It's always very, I mean, it can be very straightforward, like this sentence. The boy's name was Malcolm Nash. So we could talk for 90 minutes about the names in this book, but Malcolm uh, is a Scottish uh, name originally. It's the devotee of an evangelist saint, which is very telling because in fact, this Malcolm Nash, after a horrendous um, trauma and a horrendous sort of violent uh, experience is going to become an evangelist and is essentially on some level becomes one of the real heroes of, of the book. He was the younger brother of Charlie Utter's wife and had ridden with Charlie and 36 mules up from their home in Empire, Colorado, first to Cheyenne, where they met Bill, and then east and north toward the Black Hills. So it's important here, place names are very important, just like Deadwood, you should be a little alerted to them. So Empire, Colorado. So Colorado um, would have been, you know, a, a Mexican name for the, for the red of those hills, um, meaning the, the Mexican 
it's a Spanish word in origin, but it, from, from the Mexican population. But this idea of empire, Colorado is emphasizing, I mean, he could have chosen obviously any, oh, actually Charlie Utter would have had a birth place because he's a real person. Um, so I'm imagining that Pete is sticking to that, but it's a nice detail to include because even if it's fact, he's choosing to underscore the fact that that Charlie Utter um, is a little bit about empire. And Charlie Utter is like the one lucky guy in the novel where money just always rolls downhill to him, I think is one of the great expressions. Um, and he ends up at the end, you know, making money on the Panama Canal, all of these different things. So this idea of empire, Colorado, and Charlie Utter as being sort of this unlikely, um, you know, sort of agent of the empire is important, especially when you look at it um, in contrast to Cheyenne. So Cheyenne obviously being a, a Native American tribe. So you've got this idea of, of empire and then Cheyenne and then the Black Hills. So it's, it's um, just with the naming of these places, there are certain overtones that the reader should be, um, you're noting it. It's in there. You've got it in the, in the subconscious of nowhere else. Okay. Charlie always had a hard time saying no to his wife. The boy tried to be helpful, but anything he couldn't break, he lost. Oh my God, such amazing prose. So I could have put that on my little list of the amazing prose sentences that we're gonna pull out later, um, but it's unbelievable. It's unexpected and it tells us everything about both Charlie and about the boy. And it makes us sympathetic to both Charlie and the boy because Charlie is sort of endearing and clever and the boy is a little bit of a um, you know bumbling kind of oaf. Um, he tried to be helpful, but anything he couldn't break, he lost. So good. That feels like an adage. Maybe that is an adage that everybody already knows. Like it feels like one of those sayings, but I don't think it is. Okay. The more Charlie studied his awkward deportment, the more he wondered at the unreliable nature of human jism. So there is a lot of, um, there's a lot of talk in here about prostitution. There's a lot of talk. About, uh, there's not, not a lot of talk about semen, but there is some, but there's this idea here of, especially using the word jism, this idea of like this very Western overtone. And yet what he's talking about is biology and he's talking about um, heredity and he's talking about his family. So it's a very sort of, it's both very down to earth, but also kind of oddly uh, elevated. The boy and Charlie's wife didn't look like each other, even in the coloring, and the boy hardly spoke. It was something Charlie wouldn't have minded studying, the contrary results of spilled seed. The boy was a strong back though, and he was polite. He addressed Bill as Mr. Hickok and called everybody else the same names that Bill did, and he carried a broken-handled old Smith & Weston in a sash around his waist, but first, the way Bill carried his colts. We're gonna read just this one last paragraph. Charlie had been against bringing the boy from the first suggestion. In his wife's eyes, that amounted to a confession of all the unsafe and unfaithful behavior he and Bill got into when he was away from home. So we're getting a lot of information here. We're getting this sense of, of, of everybody's sort of at a tipping point. So we know that um, Bill is not particularly well. He's having an issue um, with his penis <laughs> and with urinating. Turns out, I don't know if he has syphilis. I don't know if he has gonorrhea. I don't know what he's got, um, but it's uh, it's not it's not good. 
And so this idea of, of him as being at this real tipping point, in fact, toward death, and then Charlie as being, um, you know, that he used to, there used to be a lot of rabble rousing when he and Bill were out together. And now he is essentially being babysat by Malcolm Nash. He's also supposed to be babysitting Malcolm Nash. And he, in fact, completely fails in that regard. Um, but there is this idea of, of him having a double life. There's his life with Matilda, his wife. And then there is this totally separate thing that he and Bill uh, get up to. And those worlds are, are colliding. A lot of worlds colliding in this book. It was peculiar the way her feelings about Bill had changed. She'd spoken well of him before they were married and once told Charlie he was half famous just for being his friend. Of course, Bill had seen her compromised since. So again, we're going to be discussing Bill's, uh, his own personal decline, but we are getting, I mean, literally, we're not even one page in. Um, in terms of complete prose. And we have so much information and, and, and we're already sort of, we're given a sense of who these people are. There's already, because we are seeing their vulnerabilities, there's already some sympathy, uh, which is a difficult thing to do. I want to talk very briefly about the narrative stance. So we talk, if you can hear that snoring, that's my dog. It's, sorry. Sorry, but if I put them somewhere else, it gets it gets problematic. So um, there's not someone in here snoring; it's a dog snoring. Um, the the way that this so this is a third person narration. So it's told that simply means it's told in third person, meaning you know the boy did this, the boy did that, Wild Bill did this, uh, Charlie thought that. It's not I and it's not you. It's told from the third person, but. It is this incredibly nimble narrator. And we're gonna go to pages 34 and 35 to take a very quick look at this masterful um, approach to narration. So, and, and this is throughout the entire novel, but we can just take this very convenient two page spread here and take a look at it. So on this side of um, 34 here, it says Bullock shrugged. He'd been thinking about Bill that afternoon, trying to decide how to fit him into Deadwood Bricks. Brickworks Incorporated. So what we have there is we, what we're having is uh, we're, we're entering into the interior mind of Seth Bullock. So they're having this conversation and then we are told he was trying to decide how to fit him into Deadwood Brickworks Incorporated. So we're, we're sort of privy to what's happening inside his brain, which is very difficult to do in a book where you have so many different characters. And I would imagine that most of you didn't really even notice that because it's so deftly done. It's so, he, he can go um, not only as if we're sort of looking at things from Charlie's perspective, which is how it was in the very beginning. Here we're looking at things from, from Seth's perspective, but we're also able to go into his mind, which is difficult to do gracefully. And then if we go right across um, to page 35, um, so this is, um, Boone is here and he's trying to get uh, the money for Frank Toll's head, this head that he has with him. So Seth Bullock reaches over with like a pair of tongs and is able to move Frank Toll's head off of his desk. So Boone is trying to get this money from Seth. Boone thought it was just like Seth Bullock to have a head mover in his desk. But the way that we know that we are obviously in the mind of Boone is because of this, uh, the word a head mover. So um, we're also getting the sense that maybe Boone is not like super smart because he sort of imagines, well, just because of what he's saying here. Boone thought it was just like Seth Bullock to have a head mover in his desk. I'll be in Cheyenne, he said. He put the head back in the bag and pulled the cord that closed the top. And I ain't forgetting who caused the inconvenience. 
It didn't have the right sound for a warning though. It sounded half like a question. So we've got this idea that he's unsure of himself. And, and this Boone character is, a, is an important character in lots of ways. And so many of these characters are so well fleshed out and you have so much understanding um, and so much appreciation for them, even if they're not really great people in terms of their morals and their ethics. But we're really in his interiority in a way that makes us appreciate that he's not super smart. So again, you have this sense of familiarity, a sense of texture, and also a certain amount of sympathy. So I mean, again, we could talk 90 minutes about how deftly um, uh, Pete Dexter handles the narration in this, but that gives you a very good sense of how he's entering into the minds of all these people and allowing us incredible access to not just what they're thinking, but you know, they're, they're sort of um, how they're thinking. It's really awesome. Okay, so now we're gonna talk about structure. So this is a long book and there is a lot happening in it. And it's very, it's, it's, we're gonna take a look quickly at this, just this beginning part, these first 17 pages as kind of a template for how the entire book is, um, is functioning. So in this very first part one, in this bill section, just in the first 17 pages. So we, we began, as we did just a minute ago, with the boy shooting Bill's horse. So we just went through that party, shot Bill's horse, but then we have this kind of digression about who Malcolm Nash is, why they're together. Um, and so I'm gonna take a look at my notes here. So Malcolm shoots the horse, and then we have this digression about Charlie and Bill and the wagon train and how Bill did not want to um, join up with Al Swearingen and his, his um, wagon train, but how he needed to do that. Uh, and then we have a sense of Bill's health and the fact that he is growing blind. Uh, and then we get a good sense of their wives fairly soon. We learn about Agnes Lake. We have them, when they meet up with Al Swearingen, we have a very clear sense of what Al is up to and it is not good. And then we have this whole idea of, of the Black Hills as this kind of the devil's dream and this sense of this ominous kind of distance that they have, but that they are, um, that they are covering. Then we have, of course, the, the crazy scene where Malcolm is in with the sex workers in the wagon. And then when we have the situation where Al Swearingen is fellating him um, and then Malcolm, that's when Malcolm shoots the horse. So we have all, so we start with the shooting of the horse. We go through all of these different digressions, all these different things happen. We filled in a lot of the backstory. Then we get to the place where Malcolm is shooting the horse. Um, then we have another digression where we have the whole backstory of Bill in Abilene and why he has sort of been disgraced and how there was a petition against him and how he was really, he had his feelings hurt by how many people signed this petition to get him out of town. Um, out of Abilene. And then we have Bill with Peerless. We have Bill with this horse and sitting there, we learn more um, about Bill and Charlie together. Then we have Bill humiliating Al Swearingen because he makes him ride in the back of the wagon. And one of the, one of the sex workers is uh, driving. Oh, so a woman is driving him. And it is that small grievance, that humiliation that, that leads to all of these different pieces of drama that unfold really, really awful, awful things that happen throughout the course of the book um, because Bill somewhat unwittingly, but also kind of purposefully is humiliating uh, Al Swearingen. 
But what happens at the end of that portion is then we have, um, as they're driving away, you have this image of the horse as lying there. So we're beginning with the shooting of the horse. We're having lots of digression. We come back to the idea of shooting the horse when it actually happens, it's explained. Then we have much more digression. And then we have this image of the horse um, by the grave that Malcolm Nash was simply not able to dig. So the point is in 17 pages out of whatever, 370, however many there are, you have this incredible mini arc that has to do with the horse. And, and, and it's very satisfying because we don't, in the beginning, we don't know why he shot the horse. And every time it comes up, you're like, wait, yeah, what's the story with this horse being shot? And, you know, is Wild Bill going to freak out and kill Malcolm? And is there going to be problems there? So there's a lot of tension, um, even just within this small arc that's about Peerless, the horse, also so tragic, you know, that his horse Peerless, who is, you know, non-pari, who has no peer, is shot in this ridiculous situation again not great things are waiting for Bill Hickok in the Black Hills. Uh, okay, so when we're talking about that kind of structure, in these mini arcs that we have throughout the whole entire book, it is so well done because we have these small arcs that keep our attention, but then of course what is being kicked off here is this much larger arc, for example, with Malcolm Nash and Al Swearingen um, that, you know, you have Al um, raping Malcolm Nash in um, you know this sort of revenge thing, and then that incident, which is absolutely horrific. The description of that, honestly, when I got to that part, I was like, I can't believe I'm making these people read this book. Um, but we're going to talk about violence toward the end. Uh, but then that, of course, uh, kicks off the the revenge that then Malcolm Nash is wanting uh, to have, and this whole examination of good and evil. So. In those first 17 pages, we have lots of digression and lots of backstory. And we also are set up right from the start with some of these sort of big themes of the book. I'm gonna have a, let's look at the water here. Everybody hydrate, hydrate out there. Oh my gosh, you should be drinking whiskey. If it's late enough in the evening and you're a whiskey drinker, you should just like, like warm in a mason jar. So in terms of themes, we're gonna look at page five. Uh, I'm gonna put my glasses on for this. The Black Hills was the wildest and the richest place on earth. So that idea of place being wild and rich, those two things are sort of made to be equal in this sense here. Um, wagons on the way to the hills had already come through from California where the gold had begun to peter out and pilgrims were headed there from the other direction too. Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Iowa. For three years, the grasshoppers in the States had come in over the crops like black clouds. And when they left, they'd taken it all with them. Bill had seen that with his own eyes in Iowa after he'd taken Agnes Lake home to St. Louis to wait for him until he got back on his feet. Okay, so, I mean, honestly, I kind of forgot that little part. If the plan is for Agnes to wait until Bill is back on his feet, that's a whole other kind of arc. Like, is Bill gonna get back on his feet? And you know from this very ominous tone about something is waiting for him in the hills that in, also if you happen to know the history, you know that in fact he is not going to uh, get back on his feet. But what's interesting here is we have the American dream. So we've got, we've got the gold rush happening in California. We've got essentially 
like the drivers in our country, like our natural resources, whether it's, um, you know, uh, the agriculture in the Midwest, whether it's gold in California, you have this real sense of, um, of our country as being young. So when they refer to the states, you know, clearly that's not the West, that's the East where you have, um, there are 38 states at this point, and actually California is one of them, but you have this idea of, of our country as being sort of only half formed, which is really interesting. It's giving us a sense of, um, again, this sense of origin story. Um, okay, so, uh, and then let's look at, oh, page seven. One big whopping page uh, here. So on, let's see, um, kind of down at the bottom here. So that, if we're talking about themes, the first theme that we are given in these first 17 pages is this idea of the American dream and sort of this origin story. But we also have this real sense of, of those things being shaped by geography. So let's take a look on seven here. What are, so this is Bill and um, Charlie talking. What are we, a day out of the hills, Bill said. More, Charlie said. The hills had been in view since early that morning. It wasn't like coming into the Rockies that seemed to grow out of the earth in front of your eyes. Until you were close, the hills just seemed to get darker. What do they look like, Bill said. Shit, Bill, you've seen the Black Hills. Bill shook his head, stubborn. Charlie said, they look black. So it's funny, I think um, at some point on the back, one of the blurbs talks about the humor in this book and it really, it's subtle, but I love it so much. Like that, I have ha with a bunch of exclamation marks in my margin because I do, I find it so charming. I love Charlie Utter. You just, he's, he's, um, it's very cool. But I wanna share my screen. It's not a but, and I'm gonna share my screen with you. Let's see. So here are the Rockies. Um, you get that sense of them kind of rising up out of nowhere. And the Black Hills, um, you know, it's tough to get a picture that's showing us exactly what these gentlemen are seeing, um, but that seemed pretty good. So he talked about it, um, the Black Hills as being, this This is all pictures, obviously, these are all of South Dakota, but this idea of um, of the hills as being black and they had been in, in their vision since early that morning. So you've got, imagine this is sunrise. Um, you've got this sense of, of the darkness of them. Uh, and then here too, you have that sense they're a little more subtle, you know, it's not just sort of like rising up like the Sierra or the, or the, um, uh, or the Rockies, but, but, but you have that sense of the darkness. And then here, um, you know, it's lighter in color, but again, you get the sense of sort of the inhospitality of it and, and the jaggedness. I think that may be actually it. Yeah. Okay. And then that is a picture of Deadwood, which we will come back to. Uh, okay. So, um, that is a picture of, of how geography is really shaping it. So there's a lot of talk about them as being the devil's dream of the blackness of the darkness. Uh, and, and in this case, the blackness is really very much about the end of Bill's life. Okay, and then um, we are going to look at page 12. I don't remember what's on it. Um, okay, so... Oh, so we're gonna talk now about the nature of good and evil. So this is one of those themes, this idea of good versus evil. So we talked about the American dream in our history. We talked about geography as shaping, you know, these different facets of the American dream. Uh, and this good and evil, hugely important theme in this book. So um, we're at the bottom of 12 here. Bill, Charlie said after a while, the boy shot old peerless. Then down a little. 
He got all excited in the wagon with the girls and somehow that whore man ended up sucking on his Peter. So he shot my horse. Again, such subtle humor, so great. Uh, he was shooting at me, thought I was the whore man and hit Peerless instead, got him dead in the heart. So um, that idea of, of Malcolm Nash as being kind of bumbling, like he's he thinks, he almost shoots his, his um, uncle thinking that it is Al Swearingen and shoots a horse, you know, shoots sort of like option C out of options A, B, and C. Bill sighed and pulled his knees up to his chest and circled them with his arms. I mean, the physical gestures in this book are so artful. So that is like the least kind of cowboy thing, but it's also so cool because you know that they're sitting on the ground. So there's this idea of them as being um, very vulnerable in lots of different ways, but that idea of, of him making himself small and pulling his knees in and, and sort of um, the loneliness in it, it's so good. And then Dexter goes one step further, Charlie's legs had been broken and he always noticed the things other people could do with theirs. Turns out in fact that his legs were shot um, once by his brother and once by someone else, I think his brother. Um, yes, so there's this sense of, 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 of this very vulnerable action that is taken by um, poor sad Bill, but then this idea of Charlie of, of sort of layering more on it. So he's just fascinated by what this man is able to do. So there, this is again, that kind of intimacy, like he's just letting you know the pain kind of unfold. He's making space for it. He's sort of supporting his friend, but also um, this idea too, um, his legs had been broken that's one of those kind of seeds of intrigue that as a reader, you're like, his legs have been broken. Like what, like, are we talking Tony Soprano here? Are we talking gunshots? What are we, you know, a horse accident? So there, there's a little question here that will be answered. So there's this very satisfactory, again, like a tiny little arc that is going to be happening. Okay, then, oh, I also have a note here. This idea of the body as being sort of a site of memory and of of physical pain and of violence. Um, all of these things that are sort of inflicted on bodies in this book are hugely important. So again, this idea of the body as a record um, uh, and as the land as a record too, but this idea of the human body as carrying scars uh, is very important in terms of um, the body as a repository of American history because the history is made up by the people um, in large part. So that, that is again, one of those themes is, is pain and legacy as being held in the body. Uh, okay, then on page 13, we're gonna take a look. Oh, did I tell you it was 12? Yeah, okay, 13. So this is a little bit of this sensitivity that we're seeing on the part of, uh, on the part of, of these men. Right in the beginning of the book, page 13, we already are seeing some of their vulnerability. This is the petition in Abilene where a bunch of people signed it and, and um, basically made it so uh, Bill Hickok had to leave town, right in the middle of 13. It was the worst back shooting Charlie had ever seen. They even let the women sign. Okay, kind of a bummer, but also we have to remember the era. I mean, this is 1876. Um, we didn't get the 19th amendment until what, 1919, 1921, 18, something like that, but not for a long time. I mean. There is a lot happening here. Um, and the fact that they let the women sign this petition, uh, there's some very strong women in this book, beginning with Jane and Agnes. Oh my gosh, I'm a China doll. I mean, there, there, there's some very, very strong women in this book, uh, but, but it is helpful to remember, wow, you know, what kind of rights we did not have back then. Bill shrugged and smiled, but some of the names hurt him. He thought he had friends in Kansas and looking at the names he saw, Looking at the names, he saw they were all afraid of him. 
What ran well, Bill, out of Abilene was hurt feelings. So that's that kind of declarative sentence. Um, and that's Charlie Utter's speaking. I mean, Charlie Utter's words, but it also describes exactly how Bill is feeling. There's a huge amount of vulnerability in, in just the fact his feelings were hurt. And to state it so baldly like that um, is, is not only talking about the sensitivity, but the willingness of these men to be vulnerable. So there's an adage for those of you writers out there, an adage in writing that if you want someone to love your characters, you should not show them the great things about your characters and all the, the like achievements. What people really love is to see someone else's vulnerability in many um, different, you know, in real life and in fiction. So this idea of seeing someone's vulnerability, this is so good because it's still very kind of macho, um, but he's just really stating it was the hurt feelings that did it. I'm looking at time. Oh my gosh, you guys, time is flying. Uh, okay, so one of the things that I noted most in the back of my book was this idea of cosmology. So basically this idea of how someone sees the world. Um, and there are lots and lots of references to God in here, and it's a capital G, you know, very Judeo-Christian God, but it's also a very sort of loose and complicated sense of, of like a Judeo-Christian world. You have um, this evangelical kind of preacher person, but there's a lot of irreverence where that comes from. And um, then of course you have him writing the Bible of the Black Hills, which is really, um, you know, kind of its own thing. And then you have, of course, this, this vengeance, this avenging angel um, in the form of Malcolm Nash, who is not, um, not exactly a, um, you know, he's not your typical sort of preacher. And then we have this really interesting exposure mostly through Sian, who I can't remember. I think that's how Sian maybe is how they pronounce the name of the China doll. Um, on page 80, 185, um, I want to take a look at um, this, this sort of different perspective that she brings to the novel. So this is so interesting because, of course, the men are interested in the idea of cremation, um, you know, this idea of what we do for our dead. It's interesting. It just came up in Joan Didion just came up in um, Slouching Towards Bethlehem this morning. But this idea of, of how we take care of our dead says a huge amount about our sense of cosmology. Um, so their interest in this cremation and this interest in sort of um, allowing a body to ascend and, uh, and to transcend through cremation, it's actually kind of amazing too because the body, it looks like to them, like nothing is there. And as once they have fired up the kiln. So then as the reader, you're like, wait, did they not, like, did it just absolutely incinerate the body? And then we find out later, of course, that that um, Sian has gone, Sian has gone and um, has collected these remains. So there, again, another one of these incredible arcs, when of course, it's so fascinating. So it's for the brickworks that they have these kilns that are gonna transform the whole town. When the fire comes, the whole town burns at the end of the book. It's this huge conflagration. The whole thing burns because it's all wood, but you know, as the reader, that pretty soon everything is gonna be brick. Like you already understand, it's so skillfully done. You understand what's coming, even you know if you stop to think about it, you understand how the whole town is going to be rebuilt because you already have that information. But meanwhile, Pete Dexter's using it in this completely different way to talk about the different cosmologies between these people. So right up at the top here, but she was not mistaken. He had picked up one side of the metal that held Song's body while Bill had picked up the other and together, equally to blame, they had put Song into the oven. 
So what she needed to do was she needed to return his heart and a couple of his important organs um, to China. So she was unable to do that because they, they did this horrible, in her mind, sacrilegious thing. Then down at the bottom here, she watched the street all afternoon, but did not see Wild Bill's friend again. She closed her eyes and willed him to her room. She became his other person and cried for him to find her so they might be whole again. She did not know how long it would take, but this would happen. She had senses that other women only pretended to possess. So there's this idea that she actually has these powers and that she will in fact summon him to her room. And in fact, she does exactly that. So this idea though of, of having um, another person is an idea that we have actually already seen. So let's go to page 26. Down at the bottom of 26 here, uh, this is uh, uh, Charlie Utter speaking. He'd been to the edge of the canyon with Bill and could predict him better than anybody alive. He was tied to Bill, who was like his own person. So this idea of having sort of a double, of having another person is recognized by Sion, Cyan, recognized by her later in the book, but it's already been introduced. And again, that's part of that vulnerability, that kind of male um, sensitivity that we see that, that runs pretty contrary to this idea of the stoic cowboy. But it's awesome because we have, of course, Bill and Charlie, who are, you know, these this sort of dual kind of creature. Um, and then we have Charlie, who becomes very close friends with this soft brain bottle fiend guy. We have Seth Bullock and Solomon Starr. Solomon Starr, who are, again, um, it's, it's really underscored more heavily in the um, television show, but they're definitely, um, you know, sort of one. Um, they're, they're like two sides uh, to sort of the same person. Then we have Agnes, who is kind of one with Bill in a very sort of spiritual and, and, and very sort of, um, well, also very physical carnal way, um, because there is that question of whether or not he has given Agnes the disease, whatever disease uh, he's suffering from. And then actually, we, we do know happily that she does have a long life. In fact, she will outlive Charlie Utter, and she certainly has outlived Bill. We know that because of the um, letter at the end. But so we have this incredible attachment between Agnes and Bill that we see as very sort of spiritual, but then we see a very cool um, kind of duality happen with Agnes and Charlie as well. And then of course with Jane and Bill. So there are these ideas of these people um, and we have Cyan and her brother's song. There are these kind of pairs of people, both men and women, this kind of um, like a link between people that is just incredibly human. And this idea that it can be shared by all of these different types of people with all of these different experiences and priorities is really just a very, it's a very beautiful thing. It's a very beautiful message. Um, okay, let's look at page 255, I need to make sure we have time to look at us. Um, oh my gosh, so much to talk about you guys. Oh yeah, so we can just look at this very quickly. Um, there, in fact, you can just kind of mark this page, but what we have here at the top, we have Jane um, who doesn't know what to do at uh, Wild Bill's graveside. And it's excellent because neither does, neither does Charlie. They both sort of the blind leading the blind. Charlie is eventually going to go blind. Bill's already blind. We don't know about Jane, but you know. Um, but so you have this idea of his funeral and this idea of them, this, this makeshift funeral they're having and not knowing what to do. Um, and there's that great line where, because Jane has been claiming that, uh, that she is Bill's wife, 
Charlie says, it's better not to say anything though than to lie. It's just you and the dead. So there's no reason to make anything up. It's sacrilegious. So you have this idea of, of, of him as really like in the last sort of, in the last account, you really want to be honest and you want to be forthright uh, or you shouldn't say anything at all. And then we have this space break and it's followed right away with the funeral service for Preacher Smith was conducted by Sheriff Seth Bullock, who read from the Episcopal Book of Common Prayer. It was the first Episcopal service ever held in Deadwood and followed by one day, the celebration of China Doll's passing into the next world. So we have three different, three, I said three and I held up four um, fingers. There are three different funerals that happen all kind of on the same half page of this book. So what Pete Dexter is doing is throughout the course, we're on page 255, throughout the course of 250 pages, he's been showing us these different faith systems. And then he's sort of tying them all together so adroitly with these three um, sort of funeral things that are all happening that, that speak to the different cosmologies and the different important sort of rites that the people are preoccupied with. So and then the last thing that I want to, um, to say about this idea of cosmology, I'm rushing a little bit just to make sure we get to some other stuff, is that um, a lot of cosmology has to do with good and evil. It has to do with how we conduct ourselves. It has to do with how we explain tragedy. So um, I think what's happening with Dexter, and I've, I did a lot of thinking about why cosmology had come up so much for me, um, is this idea that yes, there is good and evil, but he's also positing this concept that there's a um, there's a divide between good and evil, but there's also some some overlap, and there's also some sort of um, like this idea of the bottle fiend as being an imperfect angel. Um, and oh, we didn't get a chance to talk about. Um, so one of the ways that we see this kind of duality in humans um, and, and sort of other creatures is that some of these different people um, have like a like an animal familiar. That's a fantasy term, I think. Um, so for example, Jane is, is associated with the eagle when she keeps saying, I'm a screaming eagle. Um, and very, very carefully, um, we see Bill uh, Hickok as being tied to the bulldog. So there's this idea of, of, of these people having these sort of um, incarnations in the animal world, but then we also see some overlap there. So for example, Jane has snake hair and red eyes. So there's this idea of her as also being um, related to this other totem, um, the snake having been a totem for the preacher who puts the snake on the, on the cover of the Bible. So you have overlap with people um, in terms of sort of, you know, their, their sensibility and their perceptions of the world and, and, and how they sort of protect each other. But you also have that overlapping into the animal world. So again, there's this real sense of, um, uh, it's not just humanity, obviously, it's this real sense of interconnectedness. Uh, so, and then lastly, th this idea of both Agnes and of Charlie Utter, who are some of the very last people we see at the very, very close of the book, this idea of them as having mending hearts. So this idea of them as being able to sort of sew things back together and as being able to sort of bring people back together, this idea of mending things and sewing them up is, um, is one way that I think Dexter is trying to sort of go beyond this idea of good and evil, is that they're able to sort of understand and, and, and pull good and evil together. Uh, okay, so oh, I don't think we have time to do all of this. So we are going to um, talk quickly about sympathy. So 
there were a number of different characters that are um, somewhat questionable, but one, I think the easiest one to start with is this idea of Al Swearingen. So let's look at page 284. Uh, it's gonna be a green thing. Okay, this is so heartbreaking. So this part right here, this is one of those um, instances of, it's sort of a, a, an outgrowth of the violence. Uh, so it's Charlie talking to Malcolm Nash <clears throat> after quite a bit of time has gone by. Something happened to you, Charlie said, and the boy froze. It doesn't matter, Charlie said, watching his face. You didn't die. Charlie saw the boy had rung the alarm bells and stopped what he was saying. There's no hurry to sort things out, he said. For now, why don't you go back to the preacher's digs and rest? So he has this sense of not being able to push. There's this incredible patience and just consistency and just presence um, with, with Charlie. And then um, what I want to focus on, though, is down at the bottom of uh, a couple paragraphs later, uh, let's see, he, he's talking about Al Swearingen and saying he's not a man because he is this, um, he's the evil side of the Lord. And so he says, it's no man. That's the second time you said that, Charlie said, and I will tell you what I said before. That kind of thing does things, that kind does things when they turn bad that no one else would think of. So earlier in the, um, in that first 17 pages, in fact, he says the same sort of thing before um, the, the fellatio and before the terrible, terrible rape scene, um, we have this idea of Al Swearingen as having been turned bad, that something happened to him that, that in fact made him turn bad. So there's this idea of, of yes, that there is evil in the world, but there is, but there's circumstances. It's not an innate evil that anyone is born with. So it's this idea that someone needs to turn evil, which sounds kind of trivial, but it's actually a very big deal because of course this idea that, that people are innately good is, is a very important part of cosmology, of, of certain cosmologies. And I think that's the one that Pete Dexter is trying to promote. Um, okay, so let's take a quick look at the land. Are we gonna have time to do that? Let's see. We're gonna skip over the land. There are amazing descriptions of the land, but we're gonna to have to, you're gonna to have to just find those on your own. Trust me. Um, instead, we're gonna take a look at um, some of this incredible prose. So you saw some pictures of the land. I can give you a, just a recap of one of the quotations I was going to talk about. Um, so this is Deadwood and he, there's a part where he talks about like, it, it's not easy living in a gulch because every way you turn, you have to go uphill. So, and it's something like aside from the, the flood and the dam, you also always are walking uphill. So this idea of, of being, um, of settling a gulch and sort of the issues with that. So again, this idea of, of landscape as, as uh, shaping a community. So, and this is obviously a later picture because here you see all the bricks. I think those are bricks. Um, and obviously they're, they're automobiles. So this is significantly later. This would be into the 20th century. But again, you have this idea of, of Deadwood. Oh my God, the, oh, I'm sorry. Oh my God, the, oh, I'm sorry. That, the pixelation was so bad on that one, but that was sort of, um, you know, back when it was mud, the descriptions of the mud, oh my gosh, it's just crazy. And then these are the miners camps. This is down sort of more in the badlands and sort of the, the, the rougher part of town. Oh, 
so one of the things in the land that I was going to talk about is this idea of, of the cold. Um, and there's several different descriptions uh, about how the weather essentially has, has aged people uh, and, and how difficult the weather is to handle in South Dakota. And I was looking at pictures of winter in South Dakota and I was like, oh my gosh, any animal that has to grow that kind of hair and has to have that big hump of like, I think that's one of those things where it's like they store fat there for the winter or something. Did I make that up? Um, but this idea, I mean, wow, that looks cold. That looks cold. Um, as does this. I mean, really, that is very cold part of the country. Okay. I want to make sure that we have some time to look at this incredible prose. So in the very beginning, um, this is, he's describing that canoe, that, that little canoe boat thing that they go out in when they're hunting the moose in that incredible scene that, that actually becomes very, very important because there's sort of this baptism that happens for Charlie there. And there's a, a rift that is formed uh, during that time between Charlie and Bill. But this is just amazing prose. So he's describing this thing that he's about to go out in, and of course he's horrified because Charlie Utter can't swim. It looked exactly like half a dozen Indians had built it all at one time without checking to see what each other were doing. So again, this is a little bit of that cadence. That's why I had a hard time spitting it out there. Um, and of course, we we should have touched more on the idea of, of the Indians and their treatment here, the Native American people. Um, it, it's horrific, but uh, meaning it's horrific what we were doing to them and they do not, I think, have enough representation in this novel in some ways, but this was 1986 when it was written. And um, it, it, it does, I mean, I think there is some sense of, of the peril that they were feeling, the pressure that, that the indigenous people were feeling. Um, okay, Charlie took the pink from him and had another swallow. It did have a different weight in his stomach. It felt sillier than whiskey. I mean, genius. Genius, it felt sillier than whiskey. So this is this pink gin that they're drinking. So then we have this line. These are all different. These are just things that I that I had pulled out. Charlie saw that Jane loved Bill. That's those declarative sentences that are so forceful, especially um, when they're also like joined together with these sentences with all these crazy clauses. Charlie saw that Jane loved Bill. It was some strange ripples they got when God dropped Bill Hickok into the pond. So good. I mean, so first of all, when that they got um, some strange ripples, they got when God dropped Bill Hickok into the pond. So this is idea. It's a very like sort of countryish um, idea of, of the pond and this idea of the ripples. But it's also kind of this really incredible philosophical idea. Um, and I love the fact that it's tied with Jane, you know, who who is in love with him. I mean, this is one of those these one of these devotions that that um, while Bill is um, uh, is creating. Okay, and then it was darker now, and he could see her better. I love that so much. Part of that is because it's that dusk. Um, this is he and Jane are sitting together when she first shows up, and he's realizing um, that he's first of all like totally repelled by her, but also that she has what she believes is a special connection with Bill. Um, so, so it's this kind of dusk time and there is that thing where it's harder to see things before it gets truly dark, but I love the way that is put. Um, it was darker now and he could see her better. So beautiful. It's great that there's no comma. He definitely could have done that before the conjunction. It's just, it's, it's, um, it's beautiful. And the idea of these hills as being dark and ominous, but also as in a book that has a lot of blindness and a lot of, um, it's a lot of concern with blindness. To have this idea of being able to see better in the dark is really very profound. Um, 
I love this next line. This is about Jack Langrish, who is the, um, you know, the theater guy. Uh, Jack's announcements always came out of his mouth sounding like offstage voices. It's so genius. I mean, this is very, um, he's a great character on the television show too, but this idea, um, because it aligns, it reminds you as a reader of the fact that this is the guy from the theater, but also this idea of offstage voices as, as being like how he's announcing things is, it's just absolutely genius. Um, and then this line, the glasses look like they'd break if you sneezed. So that's that incredible, um, it, when they're having the party at the end, when Jane comes and sort of shoots the whole thing up, um, but it gives you a sense of that, um, the delicacy and also just, you know, human, um, the human body and sort of the, 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 the sort of ephemeral nature of, of everything and certainly of finery. Um, and then this last line I love, this is about wine, about red wine. This drink is closer to love than love itself. So he says that at one point, he talks about how awful it is to have to drink this red wine. Um, but then this idea of it, I mean, it's just genius. This drink is closer to love than love itself. Such incredible prose. Um, so I wanted to make sure that we uh, got a chance to look at that. And then um, I wanna talk about violence. So um, I'm gonna go right ahead to a slide in one second. But one thing I wanna say about violence. So there, this is literally the wild, wild west. So this is a time when like, you know, you have kind of this ad hoc, you know, volunteer sheriff person. This is a lot of men all together, a lot of men, um, who are territorial because they have their, you know, they've staked their claim, literally. You've got a lot of guns, you've got a lot of drinking, you have a lot of hostility, um, you have a lot of like very real threats to your life. So this is a time when violence, um, it absolutely was a part of life. So I think it's very kind of explainable and very, um, you could not talk about this era without having there be a lot of violence. I think the rape scene and and the sort of the brutality of of the the single mom with the with the girls with all of that happening, um, I think there's some parts where the I don't feel like it's gratuitous. I really don't, but 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 it's very difficult because it's very specific um, and very because it seems like it's being. Um, violence that's perpetrated for no real good reason on innocent people. So that's when the violence um, seems most unpalatable and most difficult, but it's also, um, you, it would have to spill over, you know, it would have to spill over like that. I did some reading about um, the violence in this book and sort of how people think about violence in literature. I do not read a ton of violent books, although I love Cormac McCarthy. Wow. Um, but there's a whole theory. These people wrote, uh, their paper is called, I think the last Western, um, oh, Deadwoods and Forms of American Empire. So they do call it the last Western because it's one of these things that was before, before South Dakota sort of became what it became a little later. But it's, it's talking, this whole paper is talking about violence as like a, a necessary step toward capitalism. So I'm gonna just read through a couple of these. The violence of the frontier is matched, if not superseded, by the corruption of the nation state and the brute force of consolidated capital. So then we have George Hurst's murderous engine expropriates all the independent miners from their land, ostensibly through a neutral appeal to economic self-interest and historical necessity, but actually through violence, intimidation, deception, and murder. And then the third one, Al Swearingen is caught in a moment of historical transition, 
a movement away from the visible and personal forms of violence characteristic of pre-capitalist social orders to the invisible and impersonal violence of the nation state as it emerges alongside monopoly capitalism. Oh my God, look how I spell the emerges. Wow, let's just call that a typo. So this idea, I really am fascinated by this and I wish we had more time to talk about it, but this idea of, of violence as being done by a capitalist country on an indigenous people and on a land, um, this idea of, 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 of sort of shaping the land into the way that it needed to be shaped and literally, um, you know, like this, this mining of the gold and it, like essentially like a sort of raping, a sort of pillaging that's happening of the actual land, but also of, of the people who live on this land. So, so the country is coming in as a whole and is setting up this sort of capitalist engine. And while like that, that sort of larger violence is being codified and is being sort of put into laws and treaties and while we're having, um, uh, you know, our territory is expanding, you also have these smaller violences that are happening because um, you have all of that happening on a, a smaller scale. So when you have a territorial skirmish in town or when you have someone um, whose own personal morals are violated by someone else, they have to sort of negotiate the law that has not been set yet by this capitalist machine. So it's not to say that like the capitalist machine is a lot worse or better, but there's this sort of outlaw kind of thing because nothing has been established yet. So I love this idea of, of all of this violence is coming, um, it, it, it's sort of a, I don't wanna say growing pain because that sounds positive, but this idea of this nation state emerging, um, it, it, is, it, it has to, it necessitates an, a certain amount of violence. So I love that. It, also, we have to remember, there's a line in here, it says the war didn't leave anybody the same. This is so soon after the civil war. Like there's just, this is a country um, that was just deeply, deeply sort of riven by all sorts of different um, needs and different regions and different imperatives. So a, a good amount of violence, I think, obviously had its place uh, in the book. Okay, I am going to stop my share and we are going to look at the very last part. Oh, this is perfect. We have actually just the right amount of time. Um, I wanna look at the close of the novel. This honestly is some of the most beautiful prose in the entire book. So you have this, this fire, this conflagration that happens. Um, and one of the things, one of the kind of tragic things that happens during the fire is of course that um, the, the bottle collector, the bottle man dies. Um, so we have this beautiful thing, yet another, um, uh, another funeral that's happening here on that the Charlie Utter, he's doing a lot with the, um, you know, with the, uh, marking of graves, which is significant. So the last bit of it here on 360. This is Charlie. He marked the grave with four smooth stones stacked one on top of another at the head. There was no wood for a marker and it did not occur to him until he was halfway down the hill that he did not know the bottle fiend's name. So sad. So this idea of not of not knowing who this person was the whole time. So this is that imperfect angel. I mean, I wish I had you know spent weeks and weeks studying just this one character. He and Malcolm Nash, I think, are meant to be these sort of um, well, it's a very Shakespearean trope. This idea of these wise fools um, that he sort of has access. He actually has access to some very concrete information about. Uh, 
people being killed because people tell him things, but he also has this kind of wisdom that comes um, from, from being sort of separate from other people, being soft-brained. Uh, so we have this really beautiful moment where Charlie Utter is, is paying homage to him and marking the grave. But what we're also meant to remember, I think at the point, at this point is that um, there's, there's something that's happening with marking the graves is very much like this book. In the very beginning of the book, um, there's a part about how um, everybody will remember the name of the person who shot, you know, Wild Bill Hickok, which I can't now remember it, but that's because my memory is kind of lame. I, Jack McCall, maybe? Um, I think there's, you know, there's something to be said, you know, when you assassinate someone important, um, often people, we can all think of a name, names of a bunch of assassins. Um, but there's this sense of, of, um, of needing to mark graves and to remember names. Of course, part of the tragedy here is that they knew each other on some very deep level and were very devoted to each other, one another, um, but, but didn't even know his name. I also think um, there's some real significance in the idea of stone as being um, the grave marker here versus wood. Um, there's no wood left because everything was burned. Everything that was wooden had burned in the gulch. Um, but but the fact that he's able to um, to have these four stones, I don't know why they're four. I should think more along that. Put that in the in this Q and A, someone, if you have a comment about why there are four stones. Um, okay, and then so that's kind of like what I view as like the first ending because this is the ending of everything that's happening in 1876 through 1878. So we've got the first, we've got sort of the bulk of the book, and then. To my mind, this part five, Charlie, the Isthmus of Panama in 1912, almost reads like an epilogue. Um, and again, this is just some of the most beautiful prose. Um, so let's look at the very first paragraph here uh, on 363. Malcolm Nash had given up his ministry in 1880 and come briefly under the tutelage of the writer Ambrose Bierce, who spent that year in Deadwood and then left for newer places, ending up in Mexico. So what's interesting, of course, is that um, Ambrose Bierce is a real writer, and we know Malcolm Nash is the one character in the, um, in the whole thing who is not, in fact, real. So it's so, again, I love all of these kinds of, um, these, these kind of breaking down of, of that sort of, um, of that level, but I mean, the, the, the layer between fact and fiction. So uh, Malcolm Nash and Ambrose Bierce, you know, he's, he's, um, they, they are kind of together. And then Ambrose Bierce goes south and so does Charlie Etter. Charlie was drawn south too, but he traveled slower and farther and found Panama. Okay, so then we have um, the, the boy is in the hills and he's sending information to Charlie, who is all the way down in Panama. Um, and let's look at page 364 here, kind of right in the middle. So he finds this young girl and um, he is, she brings the mail to him and uh, he teaches her to read. And when her family doesn't have fish for an entire year, he gives them fish. So it's, it, it's a very kind of Christ-like thing on some level that he's, uh, you know, he's, he's in a situation where he's living apart um, and he's, he's sort of dedicating himself to, to helping others. Um, okay, so in the middle here, in the beginning, the stories were long and colored. These are the stories that Charlie is telling the young girl. But as he grew old and his eyes clouded, the stories were told in only a few words. And she came to understand that all the colors had fallen away from him, leaving only the moments. 
a woman who performed tricks in the air, an animal pulling a boat underwater, dead children who spoke in his bones, a man who loved bottles. She knew he told true things. So beautiful. So you have this sense of, of this kind of recap of what has been really important to Charlie Utter. And of course it's Agnes Lake and her circus. It's that moment um, when he realized, I think that he's mortal and that, that Bill was sort of ready to die essentially um, when they're being pulled by the, the moose. Uh, dead children. So, so that, 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 that connection that Charlie had with those little girls from the very beginning is so wrenching and it makes their massacre just like so awful. Like everything about it is so difficult. And of course, um, you know, the people who are really in trouble there are the, the awful, um, the, 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 like, what is it? Not, they're the, oh, it starts with an M. They're the people in the hills, those men who are meant to sort of keep people safe. Um, and there's some question about whether or not they were able to sort of watch this whole thing happen. Um, but again, it's it's difficult to, to really place a lot of blame on the native peoples because of everything they were suffering. Um, so what's important here too, is that those, those young girls who are such tragic figures, they have kind of a, um, a like a, like a reincarnation in this young girl who Charlie is helping and he's very patient with her and she's growing up with him and she's benefiting from, from his knowledge and from his stories and from his patience. So it's almost like a coda. It's kind of like a, um, a, 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 like a tiny bit of a happy ending toward the end here. Okay, and then we're gonna look at the very last, uh, very last lines. Um, let's see. So she's reading a letter that has come, it's difficult for her to read. He listened without a word, facing the morning sun and the ocean. It was from a woman named Agnes Lake, and much of it concerned her trip to Deadwood to find what had become of him. It said she loved him. It said they had mending hearts. She saw the words moved the old man and filled him, and she was sorry she could not read them all. It pleased her to see him this way though, and she thought it was fortunate the letter had come when it did, before he died. Not so fortunate it had to be God's will. He was a kind man and had been loving, living unloved a long time as foreigners always lived and things had to happen sometime. So if you remember at the very beginning of the talk, um, I, I let you know that you should be paying attention. Um, so the very first paragraph of the whole book, when we have Charlie Utter and Bill, and we say, it says, it was lucky for everybody but the horse that it happened when it did, but not so lucky it had to be God's hand in it. It always took, a it always took Bill a while in the bushes. It wasn't dusk when he'd gone in there and things have to happen sometime. So it's dusk, the day is ending and we have Bill, um, Bill's horse, who again is, is kind of one of these animal familiars, kind of like the bulldog. Um, you have this, this death and this sad, moment um that that happens at the beginning but it's not um it's not so lucky that it had god's hand in it what's interesting to me is that's kind of an omniscient narrator who is speaking sort of through bill i mean sort of through charlie utter but not not entirely and what happens at the end here is we have those exact same words so it says um she thought it was fortunate the letter had come when it did before he died not so fortunate it had to be God's will. So it's a slightly different thing, but it's the same uh, idea. Uh, 
and things had to happen sometime. So what we're having here is these same that that same sort of phrasing is told from the perspective of essentially here from the girl. So um, it pleased her to see him that way. And she thought it was fortunate the letter had come when it did. So this is the, the, the interiority of this girl who is related to Charlie Utter. This is so beautiful. It's so incredibly well done. She now is thinking like, oof, it's, I'm so glad this letter came when it did. This isn't necessarily like predestined by God. I'm not going to be able to say like all things happen for a reason, but there is this sense of, of, um, of, 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 of things aligning and there being some sort of cosmic, um, you know, goodness happening. And we have that same thing in the beginning. And at that point, it's really Charlie Utter who is sort of thinking that like good thing it happened, um, you know, then at this point. And, and so we have what I, what I think is meant to be sort of a passing on of this ability to see these good things from Charlie Utter to this young girl in Panama. So beautiful. It's so well done. Um, I just, I'm so moved by, I'm so moved by this book and, and by his prose and by his generosity. And oh, I just, I think it's, I think it's great. I hope you guys loved it as much as I did.